Introduction with few exceptions, the information presented herein is limited largely to conditions encountered in term or near-term infants. This reflects the information that providers completing primary pediatric rotations and taking medical shelf and board examinations are expected to know. More specialized topics regarding neonatal intensive care can be found elsewhere. Physical examination of the infant The physical examination of the term newborn as presented here is organized from head to toe. Many practitioners choose to examine the infant in a different order, starting with the heart, lungs, and abdomen, and ending with the back, hips, and oropharynx. This method permits auscultation of the aforementioned systems while the patient is, hopefully, quiet, delaying maneuvers which are more likely to elicit crying until the end. If the baby has already been given an initial antiseptic bath, it is likely that an antibiotic ointment has been instilled in the infant's eyes and that an intramuscular injection of vitamin K has been administered. Ophthalmic antibiotics are given universally in developed nations to prevent neonatal conjunctivitis, in particular infections due to Neisseria gonorrhea and Chlamydia trachomatis, still a leading cause of blindness in the developing world. Vitamin K prevents the development of hemorrhagic disease of the newborn. Growth parameters weight, height, and head circumference are typically recorded in stable-term newborns shortly after birth. Most nurseries also routinely assess newborns with both neuromuscular and physical maturity rating scales, i.e., Dubowitz or Ballard scoring. The scales are particularly significant when the mother did not receive prenatal care, does not know when she became pregnant, or when the scores diverge significantly from expected. The growth measurements and maturity scores are compared with those expected based on the newborn's recorded gestational age, via maternal dates and or sonography. Weight, length, and head circumference assist in determining appropriateness for gestational age. The three data points are plotted and compared with expected ranges of values for that particular gestational age. In particular, the term, appropriate for gestational age, AGA, typically refers primarily to an infant's weight. Fetal, maternal, and placental factors all influence fetal growth, see Table 2 to 1. Chromosomal anomalies, congenital malformations, and inborn errors of metabolism are discussed in their respective chapters. Growth parameters may be less than expected because the baby is actually premature, i.e., the estimated gestational age is higher than the true gestational age. Newborns with weights less than the 10th percentile for gestational age are termed small for gestational age, SGA. Some of these infants followed a stable growth curve throughout fetal development and are simply in the lower percentiles. Others suffered abnormal growth restriction at some point in the pregnancy. Blood glucose levels should be monitored frequently in babies with SGA. Decreased glycogen reserves increase the risk of hypoglycemia. Fetal demise, fetal distress, and neonatal death rates are higher in SGA babies as a group than the general birth population. Intrauterine growth retardation, IUGR, is divided into two categories based on gestational age at onset. In early onset, symmetric, IUGR, the insult resulting in growth restriction begins prior to 28 weeks gestation. At birth, length and head circumference are proportional to expected to weight. Chromosomal anomalies in particular often result in symmetric IUGR, for obvious reasons. Infants with late onset, asymmetric, IUGR have sparing of the, relatively normal, head circumference, but length and especially weight are reduced below what is expected. These babies had normal percentile growth early in the pregnancy but fell off the growth curve when placental function was insufficient to keep up with fetal requirements for growth. They often appear long and thin, even emaciated. This may occur in infants who become infected with a congenital pathogen after 28 weeks gestation or experience late insufficiency of the cord or the placenta. Newborns who are SGA due to incorrect dating of the pregnancy may actually be premature, gestational age. 
greater than the 90th percentile for gestational age are termed large for gestational age, LGA. Again, some of these infants are simply healthy babies with weights in the higher percentiles. Others are larger than expected because they are postterm, gestational age greater than 42 weeks, or maternal dates are incorrect. Some have underlying conditions that contribute to their increased size. This is true for infants of diabetic mothers and neonates with Beckwith-Weidman syndrome. Birth trauma, polysemia, and hypoglycemia are more common in LGA patients than the general neonatal population. Infants thought to be large for gestational age, who are actually postdates will have cracked, leathery, wrinkled skin which is usually peeling. Vitals and general appearance. The initial assessment is your first impression of the patient and includes appraisals of 1. Overall appearance, well, versus, toxic, 2. General body habitus, 3. Comfort or level of distress, and 4. Color. Is the infant active? Or, if sleeping, easily arousable and appropriately responsive? When provoked, is the cry strong or weak? Overall, is the infant the size, heft, and level of development that you are used to seeing from term neonates? Is the infant breathing easily, or is the respiratory rate increased and accompanied by signs of increased effort? The skin should be warm and may be ruddy but should not be pale or cyanotic. Parts of this initial evaluation become more intuitive over many years of practice, but the elements do not change. Skin Following initial maternal infant bonding, the well-term baby is unwrapped and placed under a warmer in the nursery to permit full examination and prophylactic interventions. The warmer reduces the amount of energy the infant needs to expend in order to maintain normal temperature when unwrapped, as evaporative and convective heat loss through the thin skin of the newborn is comparably quite high. Common birthmarks include salmon patches and Mongolian spots. The salmon patch, nevus simplex, commonly termed a stork bite, is a superficial non-blanching hemangiotic lesion most commonly located on the eyelids and posterior neck at the hairline. The lesions become more prominent with bathing or crying but often fade greatly over time. Mongolian spots are flat, dark blue-black pigmented macules usually seen over the lower back and buttocks in 90% of African-American, Indian, and Asian infants. The hyperpigmented areas fade as the child ages, they present no known long-term problems but may occasionally be mistaken for abusive trauma, as the appearance is somewhat similar to that of a bruise. Port wine stains, cafe au lait spots, and hypopigmented lesions are less common skin findings which may be associated with underlying neurologic conditions. These are discussed more fully in Chapter 15. A few commonly acquired rashes often noted in the first month of life are milia, erythema toxicum neonatorum, seborrheic dermatitis, and neonatal acne. Milia is characterized by pearly white or pale yellow epidermal cysts found on the nose, chin, and forehead. The benign lesions exfoliate and disappear within the first few weeks of life. No treatment is necessary. The extremely common rash of erythema toxicum consists of evanescent papules, vesicles, and pustules, each on an erythematous base, that usually occur initially on the trunk and spread outward to the extremities. The rash typically appears 24 to 72 hours after birth but may be seen earlier. Of note, the lesions move around over time. That is, they are visible in a particular spot for several hours only but may persist in a region for longer. The rash resolves over 3 to 5 days without therapy, and the condition is of no clinical significance. Infantile seborrhea appears between 2 and 10 weeks and is commonly called cradle cap when it appears on the scalp. It may also involve the face and, less commonly, other areas rich in sebaceous glands, e.g., perineum, postericular, and intertriginous areas. It is characterized by erythematous, dry, scaling, crusty lesions. Affected areas are often sharply demarcated from uninvolved skin. For severe cradle cap, 
Baby oil is applied to the scalp for 15 minutes, followed by washing with an anti-dandruff shampoo. Occasionally, 0.5% to 1% hydrocortisone cream may be indicated. If candidal superinfection occurs, nistatin ointment is recommended. Neonatal acne typically develops on the cheeks and nose around age 3 to 4 weeks and persists for up to 3 months. The rash consists of small pustules and papules, with an appearance consistent with closed comedones in the adolescent. Like neonatal breast budding and vaginal bleeding, neonatal acne results from secondary maternal hormone stimulation and resolves gradually as these hormones are degraded in the infant. No treatment is required. Cardiac pulses. The heart examination in the infant is similar to that in any other patient. The heart sounds should be evaluated across the precordium as well as on the right, to diagnose situs inversus, if present, and in the back. Both heart sounds should be present and normal in character. It is often difficult to distinguish the S2 split in infants due to rates which may range from 100 to 200 beats per minute or greater. Evaluate for extra heart sounds and murmurs. A murmur may be appreciated in the first few days of life as the ductus arteriosus closes, most often a continuous murmur over the second left intercoastal space. It is important to palpate the brachial and femoral pulses for symmetry, both should be strong but not bounding. Coarctation of the aorta is associated with weak and or delayed femoral pulses as compared with the right brachial pulse. See Chapter 7 for details regarding the presentations, differentiation, and management of congenital heart diseases. Lungs, chest, raunchy, transmitted upper airway sounds, are very common in the hours after delivery due to residual amniotic fluid. True crackles and wheezing are pathologic. Signs of respiratory distress, if present, are usually noted early in the examination of the infant. Increased respiratory rate, retractions, grunting, and nasal flaring are signs of neonatal distress, which may or may not be primarily respiratory in origin. Neonatal sepsis and some congenital heart disorders present in an indistinguishable manner. The character of the cry should be noted. Passage of a laryngoscope through the vocal cords in the delivery room to remove meconium with suctioning can result in hoarseness noted when the infant cries. Unexplained hoarseness warrants further investigation. Abdomen In an infant, the abdomen appears full due to as yet underdeveloped abdominal musculature. If present, abdominal distension suggests a congenital obstruction. Scaphoid abdomen is more characteristic of diaphragmatic hernia. See congenital anomalies section. Typical bowel sounds are generally present within the first few hours of life. In neonates and older infants, the liver is often palpable up to a few centimeters below the anterior coastal margin. The spleen tip should be only barely palpable, if at all. Hepatosplenomegaly is a common finding in babies with congenital infections and in some patients with congenital heart disease. If the baby is newly born, the cord should be checked for the presence of a vein and two arteries. Two vessel cords increase the likelihood of gastrointestinal and renal anomalies. The cord dries within days and typically falls off within three to four weeks. Persistence of the cord beyond eight weeks is abnormal and may signify a neutrophil disorder. The inherent relative weakness of the abdominal wall around the cord insertion may result in intermittent protrusion of abdominal contents, covered by a membranous sac, through the space. These umbilical hernias are common, generally benign, and resolve in the majority of cases over time. They appear larger when the infant is crying or straining to stool. Those which are particularly large or persist beyond 3 to 4 years of age are repaired surgically. Genitalia Female while the labia majora typically cover the labia minora in newborn females, this is not always the case. Maternal estrogen stimulates growth of the labia minora, which may appear more prominent than expected in older children. 
For the same reason, mucoid vaginal secretions and occasionally blood may be noted in the introitus. These will resolve over time. The clitoris is also relatively larger at this age than in older children and adolescents. A clitoris which appears overly large and virilized may represent ambiguous genitalia, most commonly due to congenital adrenal hyperplasia in a genetic female. Both vagina and anus, in both females and males, should be patent and normally placed, and skin tags may be present in either region. Male In term neonates, the penis averages 3 to 4 centimeters long when stretched, and the testes are about 1 centimeter across. The uncircumcised penis has a foreskin which is minimally retractable. Full retraction should never be attempted. The ventral surface of the penis should be inspected for any evidence of an abnormal urethral opening called hypospadias. Chordae is the fixed fibrotic ventral bowing of the penis. It is often associated with hypospadias. Urethral openings along the penile shaft should prompt a radiographic workup of the genitourinary system to identify other associated anomalies, which are not uncommon. Chordae and hypospadias require URO surgical intervention, and the repair may need to be completed in stages. Children with either of these conditions should not be circumcised in the newborn nursery, as is routinely undertaken if the parents request, but instead managed by a surgical specialist. Both testes are generally palpable in the scrotal sacs, but this may not be the case. If a testis is missing, begin palpating for a testis-sized mass in the lower abdomen and proceed along the inguinal canal. Retractile testes are those which, when located, can be gently massaged into the associated scrotum. If no testis is found, or the mass is fixed, the testicle is termed undescended, a condition referred to as cryptorchidism. If the testis has not descended into the scrotal sac by age one year, it is surgically relocated there. Moving the testis does not decrease the associated risks of malignancy and sterility, but it does make the testis easier to examine and monitor. A mass that bulges from the groin area, possibly extending into the scrotal sac, which increases in size with crying and straining may represent an inguinal hernia. The scrotal sacs should also be palpated for other masses, most notably hydrocelas, which are fluid-filled remnants of the processus vaginalis. Hydrocelas transilluminate, which helps differentiate them clinically from other masses. The great majority resolve by one year of age. Head Asymmetry of the newborn head is very common in the product of a vaginal birth. Molding is the slight cephalad to caudal elongation of the head due to pressure from the pelvic bones and narrow vaginal canal as the head presents. Caput succedaneum is more marked, involving edema of the scalp tissues. The swelling often crosses the midline and or suture lines and is firm but pits to gentle pressure. Bruising may or may not be present. Vacuum extractions are often followed by caput. A cephalohematoma involves bleeding into the subperiosteal space. Thus, the swelling is limited by sutures lines and therefore does not cross the midline. The fetal skull bones are not fused at birth, which permits the brain and head to grow normally. Both an anterior and a posterior fontanelle are present. The suture lines may be slightly apart or mildly overlapping. Gaping sutures lines and or a bulging, usually anterior, fontanelle are associated with hydrocephalus. Overlapping is common following vaginal deliveries but should normalize within a few weeks. Face the face, too, is often asymmetric and may be bruised depending on the length and difficulty of the delivery. Looking at the face as a whole unit may permit you to identify when the appearance is syndromic, even if you are not yet certain what syndrome is represented. Eyes Opening a newborn's eyes is difficult due to edema of the lids secondary to birth. Often the baby will open the eyes when the lights are dimmed and when the baby is held upright. In that few seconds, assess the symmetry of eye opening and pupils, if possible. 
Eyes which are too far apart, too close together, or abnormally slanted may signify a congenital syndrome. Epicanthal folds are found not only in children with Down syndrome but also in many unaffected babies. Disconjugate gaze is a normal finding in infants prior to age 4 to 6 months. If prophylactic antibiotic drops have recently been instilled in the newborn's eyes, it may be difficult to see bilateral clear red reflexes via fundoscopy. However, this finding is critical to assess and document. Congenital cataracts will cloud the red reflex. Often these must be removed very early in life for the development of normal sight. Ears Ears should be examined for normal shape, placement, size, and rotation. Abnormalities in any of these are associated with numerous genetic and congenital conditions. The helix, antihex, tragus, antitragus, and lobe should appear typical and symmetric between sides. Ear tags and ear pits are not uncommon. Preauricular pits may be associated with other bronchial arch abnormalities, renal anomalies, and hearing loss. Nose Examine the nose for obvious asymmetry. Mild asymmetry is common in the weeks after birth due to uterine compression. The length of the philtrum should also appear relatively normal. Neonates are obligate nose breathers. This means that they primarily breathe through the nose unless crying or distressed. Coanal atresia, a congenital condition, is the blockage of the posterior nasal airway by a membranous or bony obstruction. The obstruction may be partial, unilateral or complete. Infants with coanal atresia develop respiratory distress with cyanosis and may become apneic when the mouth is either occluded during feeding or simply closed while the infant is calm or resting. Infants who are cyanotic when calm or feeding but have improved color with crying should have a small catheter passed through each side of the nose. Failure of passage strongly suggests coanal atresia. In the short term, placement of an oral airway or even intubation may be indicated. Surgery restores patency of the nasal passages. Mouth, throat, lip and mouth movement should be symmetric when the baby is crying. A bluish-gray tinge to the area around the lips may be observed. This is normal perioral cyanosis, resulting from the same peripheral vascular process as bluish palms and soles noted intermittently in newborns. However, this same discoloration of the lips and or tongue indicates central cyanosis due to arterial hypoxemia, a serious finding that warrants immediate intervention and rapid diagnostic procedures. The tongue should fit within the closed mouth, with the inferior frenulum long enough to permit easy movement of the tip of the tongue. The palate should be inspected and palpated. A cleft lip is obvious. A cleft palate is less so, although the condition will become clear once the infant attempts to feed. A bifid uvula may be accompanied by an abnormality of the soft palate which could affect feeding and, later, speech. Cleft lip and palate are discussed in more detail later in the chapter. See Congenital Anomalies section. Neck the newborn neck moves freely and is rather short. Restriction of head turning to either side may indicate torticollis, a unilateral congenital fibrotic shortening of the sternocleidomastoid muscle. Girls with Turner syndrome may have neck webbing with a low posterior hairline. Check the neck for masses or cysts. Upper extremities Palpate the entirety of the clavicles for crepitus indicating a clavicle fracture, present in up to 2% of deliveries. Clavicular fractures are more common in large infants and deliveries complicated by shoulder dystocia or other trauma. If crepitus is noted, radiographs are not generally indicated unless there are signs of gross deformity or asymmetric arm movements, more common in complete fractures. Incomplete fractures are usually missed at birth, with the diagnosis becoming evident when a reactive callus is noted in the area two to four weeks later. No specific treatment is necessary for simple clavicle fractures detected at birth. Complete fractures should be immobilized. Movement at the arms and shoulders should be symmetric and generally free, 
excepting normal minor flexion contractures at the elbows, knees, and hips. Birth trauma can also result in herb palsy, damage to C5-C6 nerve roots, and klumpka paralysis, damage to C7, C8, and T1 nerve roots. The former is much more common. The infant with herb palsy holds the affected arm close to the body, extended at the elbow, internally rotated, with the forearm fixed in pronation but hand movement preserved. In klumpka paralysis, the upper arm is unaffected, but the hand muscles are weak, and the grasp reflex may not be present. Both conditions often resolve over the first 48 hours of life. In those that do not, improvement can be expected up to age 6 months. Thereafter, residual deficits may gradually improve for up to 18 months with intensive physical therapy. Surgery may be indicated for static cases. Inspect the palmar creases. A single transverse crease is often noted in patients with Down syndrome, but most patients with this finding are typical, healthy infants. Examine and count fingers and fingernails. Lower extremities, anterior and posterior medial thigh creases and gluteal folds should be symmetric. If the lines do not match up, consider whether hip dysplasia may be a cause. Ortolani and Barlow maneuvers are discussed in detail in Chapter 16 and should be performed in all newborns and at all early infancy health maintenance visits. The feet should be examined for metatarsis adductus, medial curving of the forefoot, talipes equinovaris, clubfoot, and other anomalies. The diagnoses and treatments of these conditions are discussed in Chapter 16. Back. Palpate the entire length of the bony spine. Look for dimples, hair tufts, or hemangiomas overlying the spine. They may be associated with underlying neurologic anomalies. See Chapter 15. Small, shallow, solitary sacral dimples located within 2.5 cm of the anal verge are common and benign. If concerning signs are present, or there are associated neurologic functional deficits, radiographic imaging with MRI should be undertaken to assess for underlying anatomic abnormalities in the spine and or neural tissue. Neurologic, reflexes and tone. The neonate should exhibit good tone, be rusable from sleep, and readily be calmed with feeding or sucking. A few beats of ankle clonus are found in many typical healthy newborns. Age-specific reflexes which should disappear over time include the rooting and sucking reflexes, the reflex grasp, and the moro reflex, among others. When one cheek is lightly brushed from the corner of the mouth toward the ear, the neonate turns the head toward that side, rooting. The infant should have a strong suck from birth. When the examiner's finger is placed in the center of the open palm, the baby's fingers reflexively curl around it in a grip. To elicit the moro reflex, lift the supine infant's chest and shoulders up slightly from a flat surface with your hands and forearms. Gently but suddenly allow your hands and arms to move back toward the bed. Both the infant's arms should abduct suddenly away from the midline with the fingers extended. If the response is asymmetric, there may be weakness on one side or abnormally increased tone on the other. Repeated asymmetric trials should prompt more thorough neurologic evaluation. Before the delivery, prenatal conditions, a wealth of important information can be gleaned from the prenatal and delivery records in a matter of minutes, table 2 to 2. Knowledge of these factors can assist the pediatrician in uncovering subtle examination findings and suggest targeted laboratory and radiographic studies. Abnormalities in amniotic fluid volume Amniotic fluid balance is maintained through normal production of fluid and permeability across fetal, lung and skin, membranes and, later, release of adequate volumes of fetal urine. The most common cause of polyhydromnios, excessive fluid, is impaired fetal swallowing, which may occur in the setting of congenital gastrointestinal obstruction or malformation, conditions that interfere with neural function, and certain other congenital conditions, trisomies, Beckwith-Wiedemann, achondroplasia. 
Other etiologies to consider include excessive production of fetal, multiple fetuses, hydrops fetalis, or maternal origins, gestational diabetes. Too little fluid, or oligohydramnios, restricts fetal movement, lung expansion, and, if severe, placental blood flow. The most common cause is renal disease, particularly bilateral renal agenesis, widespread multicystic disease, or severe obstruction of the urinary tract. Bilateral renal agenesis results in Potter syndrome, characterized by compression deformities of the face, limbs, clubbed feet, belly, scaphoid, prune belly, abdomen, and chest, pulmonary hypoplasia. The great majority of patients with Potter syndrome die of respiratory insufficiency in the neonatal period. Congenital, perinatal infections. Congenital typically describes events that take place in utero, whereas perinatal encompasses the period just before, during, and after birth. However, the two terms are often used interchangeably when referring to maternally derived infections. A congenital, perinatal, infection results when a neonate becomes infected with a pathogenic organism transmitted via the placenta, to the embryo or fetus, or via exposure in the birth canal during labor. Table 2-3 lists numerous key aspects regarding the identification and treatment of perinatal infections. Congenital exposure to teratogenic substances Exposure to alcohol, prescription drugs, and illegal substances can lead to characteristic clinical presentations, syndromes, and or birth defects. Table 2-4 overviews the most commonly used non-prescribed substances that are known to have effects on the fetus. Table 2-5 provides a list of several prescription agents that are associated with known birth defects. In the delivery room, APGAR scores. In the delivery room, APGAR scores are assessed at 1 and 5 minutes based on defined physiologic responses to the birth process. See Table 2 to 6. The 1 minute score is generally considered to be reflective of the newborn's intrauterine environment and immediate response to delivery. The 5 minute score indicates the infant's adjustment to the extrauterine environment. If the 5-minute APGAR score is low, or there are ongoing resuscitation attempts, a 10-minute APGAR may be recorded. APGAR scores are helpful in suggesting which infants are transitioning well and which will need ongoing support. However, it is imperative to remember that the decision to institute resuscitation measures should be based on the patient's condition, rather than APGAR scores. Infants with sustained low scores are virtually always acidotic, and the longer the APGAR score remains is less than or equal to 3, the more likely the patient will have significant hypoxic injury and long-term neurologic damage. Meconium-stained amniotic fluid meconium is present in the fetal intestine by the second trimester. However, intrauterine passage of meconium is unusual before 37 weeks gestation due to delayed smooth muscle and neural plexus maturation. Meconium-stained amniotic fluid at delivery is common, 12% to 15% of all deliveries, with a higher incidence in African-American and post-term infants. Often, intrauterine passage of meconium is associated with fetal stress. As a group, infants born through meconium-stained amniotic fluid have lower serum pH results and are more likely to have non-reassuring fetal heart tracings. Evidence-based guidelines have resulted in subtle changes to the management of infants born through meconium-stained fluid. Recently, suctioning of the oropharynx at the perineum, before delivery of the shoulders, has fallen out of favor, as no benefit has been demonstrated in clinical trials. However, the practice has continued at many medical centers, on the basis that no harm has been associated with the procedure. Following delivery, if the infant is judged to be vigorous, with a good cry, good tone, and heart rate greater than 100 beats per minute, only the mouth need be suctioned with a bulb syringe prior to stimulation. However, any newborn with a poor or no cry, poor tone, and heart rate early in the first day of life, illness in the newborn often initially presents with respiratory distress.
Distress may be due to a number of pathologic processes, several of which are life-threatening. While diagnosis is critical for guiding subsequent therapy, immediate medical intervention must take precedence. All infants in distress should be stabilized as quickly as possible. Obtaining radiographic, laboratory, microbiology tests and results must not delay treatment. Many babies will only need oxygen via hood. When this is insufficient, nasal continuous positive airway pressure, CPAP, may suffice. A small minority of patients will need intubation, mechanical ventilation, and possibly even additional measures to maintain adequate oxygenation and acid-base balance. Table 2-7 to summarizes the clinical, radiographic, and arterial gas findings associated with a few of the more common newborn diseases presenting with respiratory distress. Meconium aspiration syndrome Although the immediate treatment and relative clinical significance of meconium-stained amniotic fluid are arguable and in flux, it is important to recognize meconium aspiration syndrome, MOS, in a susceptible neonate. MOS consists of delivery through meconium-stained amniotic fluid coupled with respiratory distress and characteristic chest radiograph findings, air trapping and patchy atelectasis. In affected infants, the large intrathoracic pressure that accompanies the first inspiration brings meconium from the oropharynx and trachea into the lungs. Only about 5% of infants born through meconium-stained amniotic fluid develop MOS. Severity ranges from mild, needing supplementary oxygen only, to severe disease, which requires intubation and positive pressure ventilation and is often complicated by pulmonary hypertension. Because meconium inactivates endogenous surfactant, surfactant administration may be beneficial in severely affected infants, who as a group suffer from high rates of morbidity, chronic lung disease, and mortality. That said, survival rates have improved markedly in recent years, due in part to the use of inhaled nitrous oxide to treat the associated pulmonary hypertension. Respiratory Distress Syndrome Respiratory Distress Syndrome, RDS, also referred to as hyaline membrane disease, HMD, results from a deficiency of surfactant, a complex phospholipid and protein mixture produced by type 2 pneumocyte cells in the pulmonary epithelium. The surfactant lining the alveoli reduces surface tension, improving lung compliance and preventing full alveolar collapse during expiration. Thus, the infant can generate sufficient inhalation with lower intrathoracic pressures. Conversely, surfactant deficiency results in poor compliance, leading to progressive atelectasis, intrapulmonary shunting, hypoxemia, and cyanosis. Since fetal lung maturity is generally attained by 34 weeks gestation, RDS is considered a disease of prematurity, and the incidence increases with decreasing gestational age. However, RDS does occur uncommonly in term and near-term infants, either through incorrect dating of the pregnancy or delayed cell maturation, surfactant production. For example, the combination of fetal hyperglycemia and hyperinsulinemia in maternal diabetes may result in delayed production of surfactant. Conversely, ongoing fetal stress, e.g., preeclampsia, is associated with accelerated lung maturation. Affected infants characteristically present with tachypnea, grunting, nasal flaring, chest wall retractions, and cyanosis in the first few hours of life, see Table 2-7. Auscultation reveals poor air entry. The diagnosis is confirmed by chest radiograph that reveals a uniform reticulonodular or ground glass pattern and air bronchograms that are consistent with diffuse atelectasis. Conventional therapy for the affected infant includes respiratory support with oxygen, CPAP, and or mechanical ventilation, depending on the severity of respiratory compromise. The natural course is a progressive worsening over the first 24 to 48 hours of life. After the initial insult to the airway lining, the epithelium begins to repopulate with type 2 alveolar cells, which produce surfactant. Subsequently, there is increased production and release of surfactant, 
so there is a sufficient quantity in the airspaces by 72 hours of life. This results in improved lung compliance and resolution of respiratory distress. The best form of treatment is prevention. When preterm delivery cannot be prevented, administration of corticosteroids to the mother 48 hours before delivery can induce or accelerate the production of fetal surfactant and minimize the incidence of RDS. In fact, antenatal steroids are administered to all women at risk for preterm delivery prior to 34 weeks gestation. Surfactant can also be administered to infants soon after birth via endotracheal tube, with the goal of increasing lung compliance and preventing the onset or reducing the severity of RDS. Transient tachypnea of the newborn Transient tachypnea of the newborn, TTN, is relatively common, affecting up to 0.5% of term newborns. The condition, also termed retained fetal lung liquid syndrome, is thought to be due to delayed resorption of fetal pulmonary fluid. Normally, more than a third of fetal lung fluid is resorbed in the few days prior to the onset of labor. The remaining fluid must be cleared during labor in the first few hours of life. Disruption of this normal reabsorption results in excess fluid in the lungs. The respiratory distress is generally short-lived, resolving in hours to a few days with minimal intervention. Large preterm infants are at increased risk, as are infants born by elective cesarean section without preceding labor. Multiple additional risk factors include macrosomia, significant maternal fluid overload, delayed cord clamping, precipitous delivery, multiple gestations, and infant of the diabetic mother. The affected infant presents shortly after birth with obvious respiratory distress, including sustained tachypnea, nasal flaring, grunting, and chest wall retractions. Cyanosis is uncommon. Results of the arterial blood gas testing and chest radiograph are noted in Table 2-7. A complete blood count, when obtained, is not suggestive of infection. Although the studies listed are helpful, TTN is essentially a diagnosis of exclusion. Management of the illness parallels the severity of the presentation. Mildly affected infants, the great majority, may need only supplemental oxygen delivered via hood. When hypoxemia persists despite 100% hood oxygenation, nasal CPAP is used. This is generally all that is needed. Rarely, intubation and mechanical ventilation may be necessary for a short time. Neonatal pneumonia Pneumonia is the most common neonatal infection. Pathogens may include many of those detailed in Table 2-3. However, the most common agents are bacterial, Group B Streptococcus, Escherichia coli, Klebsiella species. Initial signs are generally those of respiratory distress. Indeed, the clinical and radiographic presentation of pneumonia may be indistinguishable from MOS, RDS, and TTN. Chest radiograph findings are most likely to suggest widespread disease rather than a focal or lobar infiltrate. In other cases, early signs may instead be those of neonatal sepsis, including temperature instability, poor feeding, and lethargy. Because of the significant morbidity and mortality associated with neonatal bacterial infections, the most appropriate course of therapy is to obtain a complete blood count with differential and blood cultures. If the white blood count is concerning, e.g., high immature to mature cell ratio, or the infant appears ill, intravenous ampicillin and gentamicin should be started pending culture results. Neonatal sepsis Neonatal sepsis is generally divided into early onset versus late onset sepsis. Early onset sepsis occurs anytime from birth to five or so days. Late onset sepsis affects babies after the first several days of life through one month of age. Both illnesses consist of bacterial infection of the blood associated with signs and symptoms of systemic compromise. Early subtle signs may hint at the diagnosis, temperature instability, poor feeding, decreased tone, apnea, irritability, lethargy, hypoglycemia. 
Often, however, neonatal sepsis presents suddenly and progresses rapidly, in severe cases culminating in respiratory failure, septic shock, meningitis, 30%, disseminated intravascular coagulation, DIC, multisystem organ failure, and death. Early neonatal sepsis pathogenesis epidemiology in early onset sepsis, the infant becomes infected during the intrapartum period with bacteria residing in the mother's genitourinary tract. Group B streptococcus is still the most common pathogen. However, universal antenatal screening at 35 to 37 weeks gestation and intrapartum prophylactic administration to colonized women has decreased the incidence substantially. Two doses of the antibiotic, penicillin, ampicillin, or cefazolin, must be administered, at least four hours apart, prior to delivery for prophylaxis to be considered adequate. Escherichia coli and Listeria monocytogenes are also important pathogens in early-onset neonatal sepsis. Risk factors predisposing factors for early-onset sepsis include premature or prolonged rupture of the membranes, greater than 18 hours, chorioamnionitis, maternal intrapartum fever or leukocytosis, and preterm birth. Clinical manifestations Because the disease has a high mortality and is rapidly progressive, providers must maintain a high index of suspicion. Infants with subsequent decompensation may initially display the nonspecific signs mentioned above. Cyanosis, pallor, petechia, vomiting, abdominal distension, ileus, respiratory distress, apnea, and hypotension are more worrisome signs. Respiratory manifestations in particular are extremely common. As previously noted, any infant presenting with respiratory distress in the newborn period warrants a septic workup and treatment with broad-spectrum antibiotics until culture results are known. Laboratory evaluation Seemingly unaffected infants who are at increased risk, suspected chorioamnionitis, maternal fever, leukocytosis, inadequate intrapartum prophylaxis, prolonged rupture of membranes, and afebrile infants with subtle, transient signs of possible early sepsis should have a complete blood count and blood culture drawn. Various algorithms exist regarding the use of the white blood cell count, differential, and serial C-reactive protein levels to guide watchful waiting, versus 48 hours of antibiotic therapy until culture results are known. Infants with suspected sepsis should have blood and CSF sent for culture. CSF should also be tested for gram stain, cell count and differential, and protein and glucose levels. A serum WBC 40,000, a total neutrophil count below 1,000, and a ratio of bands to neutrophils of greater than 20% all correlate with an increased risk of bacterial infection. Neonates with organ-specific signs and symptoms will need additional testing, e.g., chest, abdominal radiographs. Treatment The treatment of early onset. Sepsis begins before the diagnosis is confirmed via laboratory data because the mortality rate is extremely high, up to 25%. If confirmed, the patient is treated with a combination of ampicillin and gentamicin for 10 to 14 days. This remains the most effective treatment against most organisms responsible for early sepsis and is the standard of care for initial management. If meningitis is present, the treatment is extended, and a third-generation cephalosporin is recommended for improved penetration across the blood-brain barrier. Once an organism is identified and antibiotic sensitivities are determined, antibiotic therapy may be tailored to treat the infecting organism. Infants with unstable vital signs and evidence of septic shock warrant transfer to a neonatal intensive care unit for more specialized management of their disease. Late-onset neonatal sepsis Late-onset sepsis often occurs in a full-term infant who was discharged in good health from the normal newborn nursery. The infection may be isolated to the blood, bacteremia. However, it is not uncommon for hematogenous seeding to result in focal infections such as meningitis, 25%, usually caused by group B streptococci or E. coli, osteomyelitis, 
Group B Streptococci and Staphylococcus aureus, Arthritis, Neisseria gonorrhoeae, S. aureus, Gram-negative bacteria, and Urinary tract infection, E. coli, Klebsiella and other Gram-negative rods. The presentation, workup, and initial treatment of late-onset sepsis is similar to that of early-onset sepsis, with some variations depending on the most likely site of the infection. Jaundice Bilirubin is a bile pigment, formed from the degradation of heme derived from red blood cell, RBC, destruction and ineffective erythropoiesis. This initially unconjugated form must be conjugated in the liver to permit excretion in the bile, stool, and urine. Hyperbilirubinemia manifests as jaundice, a yellowing of the skin, mucous membranes, and sclerae. In neonates, jaundice becomes clinically apparent when serum bilirubin levels are greater than 5 mg per deciliter. Hyperbilirubinemia may be classified as unconjugated, indirect, which in neonates can be physiologic or pathologic in origin, and conjugated, direct, which is always pathologic. Conjugated hyperbilirubinemia exists when the direct fraction of bilirubin in the blood exceeds 2 mg per deciliter or 15% of the total bilirubin. Otherwise, the disorder is classified as unconjugated. Expected levels of unconjugated bilirubin may top 12 mg per deciliter in healthy newborns, with normal values based on gestational and chronologic ages. Pathogenesis Physiologic jaundice and breast milk jaundice are by far the most common causes of hyperbilirubinemia in the neonate. Physiologic jaundice is due to indirect hyperbilirubinemia which occurs in the absence of any underlying abnormalities in bilirubin metabolism. The jaundice is never present before 24 hours of age and peaks between age of days 3 and 5, generally at or below 12 to 15 mg per deciliter. Values normalize by 14 to 21 days of life. Infants born before term have later and higher peak bilirubin levels. Breast milk jaundice is similar to physiologic jaundice in terms of presentation, although bilirubin levels tend to peak slightly higher and remain elevated longer. The mechanism of breast milk jaundice is not completely understood. Some researchers have theorized that it is caused by an increase in enterohepatic circulation from an unknown maternal factor in breast milk. The American Academy of Pediatrics, AAP, recommends against routine interruption of breastfeeding in healthy, well-hydrated, term newborns with hyperbilirubinemia due to breast milk jaundice, even when serum bilirubin levels exceed numbers at which medical intervention, i.e., phototherapy, is recommended. Jaundice due to a pathologic process does not appear any different on physical examination than physiologic or breast milk jaundice. However, identifying neonates with non-physiologic jaundice is crucial to preventing long-term morbidity and complications from the underlying disease process, i.e., anemia, stroke, metabolic disease. Table 2-8 lists factors associated with an increased likelihood of pathologic jaundice. The most common cause of non-physiologic unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia is ABO incompatibility. Frequent causes of conjugated hyperbilirubinemia are diseases involving liver pathology, biliary atresia, neonatal hepatitis, and congenital infections. Two additional causes to consider are alpha-antitypsin deficiency and galactosemia, Chapter 18. ABO incompatibility is the most common cause of pathologic unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia. It is most common in infants with type A or B blood born to type O mothers. ABO incompatibility results in a hemolytic anemia in the newborn due to an isoimmune process. The direct Coombs test detects maternal antibody on the surface of the neonatal RBC and will be positive in infants with ABO incompatibility. The indirect Coombs test is used to identify the specific type of antibody, anti-A, anti-B, etc. 
Additional laboratory indicators include an elevated reticulocyte count in a blood smear demonstrating hemolysis and microspherocytes. Hepatomegaly is uncommon but may be present. Approximately 1% of newborns develop clinically significant unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia from ABO incompatibility. Although the use of phototherapy is common in these infants, the incidence of severe hemolytic disease necessitating exchange transfusion is rare. RH incompatibility is a more serious type of isoimmune hemolytic anemia wherein an RH-negative mother who has become sensitized to the antigen with a previous pregnancy produces antibodies that react with RH antigen on fetal RBCs. The fetus must be RH-positive for the process to occur. Maternal RH status is determined early in the prenatal period. Rogum, a solution of Ig antibodies to RHD antigen, binds fetal cells in maternal circulation and destroys them, preventing the development of isoimmunity. It is administered to Rh-negative mothers at 28 weeks gestation. The hemolytic anemia resulting from Rh incompatibility is generally more severe than that from ABO incompatibility. Unlike Rh incompatibility, prior maternal antigen sensitization is not required for ABO incompatibility. Clinical manifestations History It is important to determine the infant's diet, breastfed, formula-fed, or a relative mixture, the number of feeds in a 24-hour period, goal of 8 to 12, and the duration or volume of each feed. Inadequate intake is associated with delayed hepatic circulation and excretion of bilirubin, and more severe jaundice. The family history should include questions regarding heritable conditions in Table 2 to 8. Prenatal screens, the physical examination, and growth parameters should be reviewed for possible indications of congenital infection. The length of time the jaundice has been present, whether it is worsening or improving, and associated gastrointestinal or constitutional symptoms may assist in guiding the laboratory evaluation. Physical examination In neonates, jaundice reliably progresses in a cephalopetal direction. Therefore, those infants with clinically apparent jaundice below the umbilicus are likely to have higher levels than those with only facial jaundice. It disappears in the opposite direction. Scleral icterus is generally the last to resolve. Diagnostic evaluation Regardless of the presumptive etiology and classification, physiologic versus pathologic, thoughtful stepwise evaluation of neonatal jaundice is imperative. Infants with significant clinical jaundice, jaundice in excess of expected based on age, and jaundice in the presence of risk factors noted above should have serum total and direct bilirubin measurements drawn. Published nomograms permit stratification of infants into risk categories based on gestational age, chronologic age and hours, and bilirubin levels. Infant who are in the category of high risk for development of excessive bilirubin levels should have serial measurements drawn every 4 to 12 hours. The utilization of transcutaneous measurement devices has decreased the need for frequent blood draws. The initial measurement should be a serum sample, as transcutaneous devices do not differentiate conjugated from unconjugated bilirubin. Similarly, a transcutaneous measurement that reaches the level at which medical intervention is recommended should be confirmed with a serum sample. Figure 2 to 1 delineates the suggested workup of an infant with suspected non-physiologic jaundice which, as previously noted, may be either conjugated or unconjugated in origin. These additional studies should be selectively considered in infants with higher than expected peak bilirubin levels, rapidly rising levels, levels necessitating medical management, conjugated hyperbilirubinemia, or delayed resolution of jaundice. Treatment The goal in treating unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia is to avoid kernicterus, or sublethal bilirubin encephalopathy. Unconjugated bilirubin is normally bound tightly to albumin in the blood. However, when serum levels of unconjugated bilirubin exceed the binding capacity of albumin, excess free. 
bilirubin can cross the blood-brain barrier. Kernicterus is characterized by yellow staining of the basal ganglia, hippocampus, cerebellum, and various additional brainstem neurons, resulting in widespread cerebral dysfunction. Initial clinical features include lethargy and irritability, progressing to hypotonia, epistotonos, and seizures. Infants who survive develop cerebral palsy and movement disorders and may also suffer from irreversible vision and hearing problems and or mental retardation. Orogastric feeding or intravenous fluids are beneficial when dehydration is present, although overhydration does not result in more rapid resolution of the jaundice. When additional intervention is needed or hydration status is normal, phototherapy and exchange transfusion are the treatment modalities used to lower serum unconjugated bilirubin levels. In July 2004, the AAP Subcommittee on Hyperbilirubinemia published extensive and extremely helpful clinical practice guidelines regarding the management of hyperbilirubinemia and prevention strategies. In addition to the figures cited above, nomograms provide phototherapy and exchange transfusion treatment guidelines for infants in each risk group. HTTP colon slash slash AAP policy dot AAP publications dot org slash CGI slash content slash full slash pediatrics semicolon one one four slash one slash two nine seven closing parenthesis. Special blue fluorescent tubes are the most effective light source for providing intensive phototherapy. The light source is placed as close to the infant as practical, with lighting above and below if possible. The infant should be virtually naked and wearing eye protection. Since insensible losses are increased, Adequate hydration is critical for assuring sufficient enterohepatic circulation and increasing urine and bile output. If possible, the infant should be allowed to breastfeed. Exchange transfusion is recommended for infants with levels directed in the practice guideline nomograms mentioned above, as well as any infant with a total serum bilirubin greater than 25 mg per deciliter or clinical manifestations of acute bilirubin encephalopathy. Infants with isoimmune hemolytic disease may respond to early intervention with intravenous gamma-globulin therapy and avoid exchange transfusion. As noted, elevated serum-conjugated bilirubin levels are never physiologic. Every effort should be made to determine the cause, reverse the underlying process, and limit complications. Phototherapy in the setting of conjugated hyperbilirubinemia is not effective and causes bronzing of the skin that takes months to resolve. Congenital anomalies Cleft lip and palate Multiple genetic and environmental factors play a role in the etiology of cleft lip and cleft palate. Cleft lip, with or without cleft palate, occurs in 1 in 1,000 births and is more common in boys. Cleft palate occurs in 1 in 2,500 births. Cleft palates are common in patients with chromosomal abnormalities. Malformations encountered more commonly in patients with cleft lip include hypertellerism, hand defects, and cardiac anomalies. In general, infants with isolated cleft lip do not need modifications to feed without respiratory difficulty. Patients with cleft palate are prone to choking when fed. Most benefit from manually repositioning the tongue and feeding while side lying. Many patients also do well with an elongated, soft nipple. Most cleft lips are repaired shortly after birth or once the infant demonstrates steady weight gain. Cleft palate repair is usually undertaken at 9 to 12 months of age. Complications after cleft palate repair include speech difficulties, dental disturbances, and recurrent otitis media. Although two-thirds of palate-corrected children demonstrate acceptable speech, a hypernasal quality or muffled tone may persist in the voice. Tracheoesophageal fistula Incomplete anastomosis of the superior and inferior portions of the esophagus is known as esophageal atresia. 85% of newborns with esophageal atresia also develop a tracheoesophageal fistula. TEF, which is an abnormal communication between the trachea and the esophagus. 
This connection is usually between the trachea and the lower portion of the esophagus, fig. 2-2. 40% of patients with TEF have other congenital defects. For example, Vactoral syndrome describes the association of vertebral, anal, cardiac, tracheal, esophageal, renal, and limb anomalies. Neonates with TEF have excessive oral secretions, inability to feed, gagging, and respiratory distress. Polyhydromnios often is noted on fetal ultrasound, lateral and anteroposterior chest radiographs with a replogal tube. In the proximal esophagus reveal a superior blind pouch, with air in the GI tract. In isolated esophageal atresia without TEF, gas is absent from the GI tract. Infants with TEF but without associated esophageal atresia, H-type TEF, may have nonspecific symptoms for several months, including chronic cough with feeding and recurrent pneumonia. Surgical correction involves division and closure of the TEF and end-to-end anastomosis of the proximal and distal esophagus. Esophageal strictures at the anastomosis site are a common complication requiring periodic dilation. Duodenal atresia Duodenal obstruction may be complete, atresia, or partial, resulting from a web, band, or annular pancreas. Duodenal atresia results from a failure of the lumen to recanalize during the 8th to 10th week's gestation. Polyhydromnios may be noted on prenatal ultrasound. Duodenal atresia is usually associated with other malformations, including cardiac anomalies and GI defects such as annular pancreas, malrotation of the intestines, and imperforate anus. Duodenal atresia occurs with increased incidence in patients with trisomy 21. After birth, bilious emesis begins within a few hours of the first feeding. Abdominal radiographs typically demonstrate gastric and duodenal gaseous distension proximal to the atretic site. This finding is known as the double bubble sign. When present, gas in the distal bowel suggests partial obstruction. Surgical correction is necessary. Congenital diaphragmatic hernia. Congenital diaphragmatic hernia results from a defect in the, usually left, posterolateral diaphragm that permits abdominal contents to enter the thorax and compromise early lung development. This defect is commonly referred to as a buccalic hernia. The combination of pulmonary hypoplasia and pulmonary arteriolar hypertension makes this congenital defect lethal in many cases. Early symptoms include respiratory distress with decreased breath sounds on the affected side, right-sided, shifted, heart sounds, and a scaphoid abdomen. Diagnosis is sometimes made via fetal ultrasound. After birth, the defect is obvious on chest radiograph. Initial management consists of intubation and ventilation, and placement of a replogal tube to minimize GI distension, which would further compromise effective lung volume. Sometimes conventional ventilation is not sufficient to provide adequate oxygen delivery and carbon dioxide excretion. In such cases, high-frequency ventilation or ECMO may be needed to manage the child's pulmonary hypertension. Ultimately, the defect requires surgical correction. Omphalocele and gastroscosis. Omphalocele is an uncommon disorder in which the abdominal viscera herniate through the umbilical and supraumbilical portions of the abdominal wall into a sac covered by peritoneum and amniotic membrane. Large defects may contain the entire GI tract, the liver, and the spleen. The incidence of omphalocele is 1 in 6,000 births. Polyhydromnios is noted in utero, as is the omphalocele itself in many cases. 10% of infants with omphalocele are born prematurely. The sac covering the defect is thin and may rupture in utero or during delivery. Associated congenital GI and cardiac defects are common. 10% of children with omphalocele have Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome, exophthalmus, macroglossia, gigantism, hyperinsulinemia, and hypoglycemia. In contrast, 
Gastroscosis involves herniation of intestine through the abdominal wall, lateral to the umbilicus, with no covering peritoneal membrane. The eviscerated mass is adherent, edematous, dark in color, and covered by a gelatinous matrix of greenish material. The pathogenesis of this abdominal wall defect is not clear. Polyhydromnios is typically noted in utero. Gastroscosis is a surgical emergency, often with staged closure. Biliary atresia. In newborns, the term biliary atresia refers to absence of the common bile duct, through which bile from the liver is normally transported to the intestine. Persistent cholestasis results in liver fibrosis, portal hypertension, and eventual liver failure. Conjugated hyperbilirubinemia is the earliest finding. Over the first few weeks of life, infants develop clay-colored, light, stools, dark urine, and hepatosplenomegaly. Liver enzymes are significantly elevated. Nuclear medicine scanning using technetium-99 can be used to confirm the absence of bile flow from the liver. Establishment of a conduit from the bile ducts into the intestine via surgery is beneficial in many children, however, the majority require liver transplantation. Before discharge home term, well-appearing newborn infants with no significant risk factors in the pre-perinatal period may be discharged at 48 hours of age. Discharge after 24 hours but before 48 hours of age may be permissible when sufficient time has elapsed to identify early problems and when the family is judged to be well prepared to care for the child at home, table 2 to 9. Babies born via caserine section are not typically discharged prior to 72 hours of age due to maternal obstetrical considerations. The first vaccination against hepatitis B is typically administered prior to discharge. At the hospital, a sample of infant blood is collected and sent to a state screening lab to test for a variety of illness, including some metabolic diseases, e.g., phenylketonuria, sickle cell disease, congenital adrenal hyperplasia, and congenital hypothyroidism, see Chapter 14. A hearing test is completed as well. These studies are undertaken in the nursery because early identification is relatively inexpensive compared with the cost of treating the disease at a later stage. The incidences of these conditions range from uncommon to rare, but all are associated with significant morbidity when left untreated. Health maintenance visits Infants should be evaluated at a health maintenance visit within a week of discharge. Many babies are seen earlier to make sure weight loss is not excessive and jaundice, if present, is resolving. Neonates typically lose 5% to 7% of their birth weight in the first few days. A 10% drop is within normal limits but warrants close monitoring and early follow-up. Babies should gain back to birth weight by 14 days of age. The AAP recommends that breastfed infants be started on vitamin D drops, 400 IU per day, beginning in the first few days of life. Although it is inarguable that breast milk provides the best nutrition for infants in the first year of life, to say nothing of its immunologic advantages, the adequacy of vitamin D in breast milk is not sufficient to prevent some infants from developing vitamin D deficiency and even rickets. The risk is highest in patients with dark skin who, due to their climate or otherwise, are exposed to very little sunlight. Both breast milk and current commercial formulas provide sufficient iron to infants. Hemoglobin and hematocrit levels decrease slowly in the term infant to a physiologic nadir, sometime between 8 and 12 weeks of life. During this period, hemoglobin values as low as 9 mg per deciliter are considered normal. Shortly thereafter, the hemoglobin begins to rise in response to infant marrow production of cells. Infant mortality the infant mortality rate is defined as the number of deaths prior to age 1 year per 1,000 live births. The infant mortality rate in the United States in 2005 was 6.86, statistically unchanged from 2000. 
Key points ophthalmic antibiotics are administered to newborns on day of life 1 to prevent conjunctivitis with Neisseria gonorrhea and particularly Chlamydia trachomatis, which is a leading cause of blindness in the developing world. Parenteral vitamin K prevents the development of hemorrhagic disease of the newborn. IUGR is divided into two categories based on gestational age at onset. In early onset, symmetric, IUGR, growth is restricted prior to 28 weeks gestation, and birth length and head circumference are proportional to weight. Infants with late onset, asymmetric, IUGR have sparing of the, relatively normal, head circumference, but length and especially weight are reduced below what is expected. Common benign rashes in newborns and young infants include salmon patches, mongolian spots, milia, erythema toxicum, infantile seborrhea, and neonatal acne. Closure of the ductus arteriosus is often associated with a continuous murmur over the second left intercoastal space. Persistence of the umbilical stump beyond eight weeks of age is abnormal and may signify a neutrophil disorder. When the urethral opening is located along the penile shaft rather than at the tip, this is termed hypospadias. Chorday is fixed fibrotic ventral bowing of the penis, it is often associated with hypospadias. Hypospadias may be associated with other, less obvious genitorinary anomalies. Retractile testis will eventually relocate permanently to the scrotum. No intervention is necessary. Abnormal head shape in the newborn may be due to molding, caput sexidanium, or cephalohematoma. Infants with coanalotresia develop respiratory distress with cyanosis and or apnea when the mouth is occluded, during feeding, or closed. While the infant is calm or resting, bilateral renal agenesis results in Potter syndrome, characterized by compression deformities of the face and limbs, prune belly, abdomen, and severe pulmonary hypoplasia. Intrauterine bilateral renal agenesis results in oligohydramnios. The vast majority of infants with RDS, HMD are born prior to 34 to 35 weeks gestation. The pathogenesis is lack of surfactant. The diagnosis is confirmed by a chest radiograph that reveals a uniform reticulonodular or ground glass pattern, and air bronchograms that are consistent with diffuse atelectasis. Pneumonia is the most common neonatal infection, and group B streptococcus is the most common pathogen. Initial signs are generally those of respiratory distress, however, both the clinical and radiographic presentations of pneumonia may not differ significantly from neonatal sepsis, MOS, RDS, HMD, and TTN. Universal antenatal screening at 35 to 37 weeks gestation for group B streptococcus and intrapartum prophylactic administration to colonized women have decreased the incidence of early-onset neonatal sepsis substantially. Two doses of an appropriate antibiotic must be administered at least four hours apart prior to delivery for prophylaxis to be considered adequate. Neonates with suspected bacterial infection, including neonatal sepsis and or pneumonia, require emergent evaluation and coverage with ampicillin and gentamicin until culture results are known. Neonatal hyperbilirubinemia is classified as unconjugated, indirect, which can be physiologic or pathologic in origin, and conjugated, direct, which is always pathologic. Physiologic jaundice describes indirect hyperbilirubinemia which occurs in the absence of any underlying abnormalities in bilirubin metabolism. Physiologic jaundice and breast milk jaundice are by far the most common causes of hyperbilirubinemia in the neonate. The most common cause of non-physiologic unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia is ABO incompatibility. Conjugated hyperbilirubinemia is often the result of diseases involving liver pathology, such as biliary atresia and neonatal hepatitis. Kernicterus results when high levels of unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia cross the blood-brain barrier, resulting in widespread cerebral dysfunction.
Infants who survive the immediate effects develop cerebral palsy and movement disorders and may also suffer from vision, hearing problems and mental retardation. Vactoral syndrome describes the association of vertebral, anal, cardiac, tracheoesophageal fistula, renal, and limb anomalies. Infants with TEF in the absence of esophageal atresia may have nonspecific symptoms for several months, including chronic cough with feeding and recurrent pneumonia. Duodenal atresia is associated with a characteristic radiographic finding, the double bubble sign, consisting of gastric and duodenal gaseous distension proximal to the atretic site. Conjugated hyperbilirubinemia is the earliest sign of biliary atresia. This is followed by the development of clay-colored, light, stools, dark urine, and hepatosplenomegaly. Liver enzymes become significantly elevated early in life. Neonates may lose up to 10% of their birth weight within the first few days of life. Babies should gain back to birth weight by 14 days of age, 21 days in breastfed infants. The AAP recommends that breastfed infants be started on vitamin D drops, 400 IU per day, beginning in the first few days of life. Hematocrit levels in the term neonate decrease slowly to a physiologic nadir, sometime between 8 and 12 weeks of life, when hemoglobin values as low as 9 mg per deciliter are considered normal. Iron supplementation before and or during this nadir is neither indicated nor beneficial.